Well, welcome everyone. It's awesome to be together on this first day of Advent. When Ted uh, and Len were describing how we were going to approach Advent this year, I was really encouraged by it because I want to take a moment and describe to you when I look at this, what comes into my mind initially, immediately. Christmas uh, for me, the big day was Christmas Eve. That's the morning we got up early. We had someone coming into the farm that we had to train to feed all the animals and do all the things, load up all the presents, drive about an hour and 15 minutes to grandma's house, unload all the presents under the tree. So we're looking at them loading. We're looking at them unloading. Have a big family dinner. Attend Christmas Eve service at the Beaverton United Methodist Church. And, uh, and finally, that night then, get to present opening. But what this represented to me was the countdown, right? Oh, there's four purple candles to go before the white one. Because this, this is the money candle. When this thing gets lit... We are in Beaverton at the United, uh, the Church of the, um, at the, I'm sorry, I'm getting my church is mixed up, at the, at the United Methodist Church. My grandma's playing the organ, and this is lit, and we're close to presence. Longest service of the year, <laughs> by far. But here was the kicker, right? My aunt and uncle went to the Catholic Church, and they went to this thing called Mass. I did not know what they did at Mass, but it took entirely too long, because we could get home from from United Methodist Church and wait an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours for them to get there. So I did not know what the Catholics were doing, but they needed to speed it up and get things going. <laughs> and so I look at this, you know, I grew up in the Church of the Brethren. We would come up with the candles, light the candles in the altar, and then we'd begin each week through Advent stepping through this. And we open up today with, with the Advent candle. And so I, I'm, I'm appreciative that we're stopping, that we're looking at each candle in this season. And that, that the things that we may think of over and over or our traditions that we have, we're going to stop and take a new, fresh look at what this is, what it means. And hopefully jar us a little bit out of, uh, of the tradition that we may have and, and take a fresh look. So today, we light the peace candle. And I would like to read uh, Romans 15. Have it right here. Put my uh, okay. Romans 15. And again, Isaiah says, "The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope." May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So uh, if you are our guest today, these blue Bibles are stacked in the back. We will be reading out of the... um, out of this version, the ESV, and please grab one if you don't have one. I encourage you to take it with you. So we're all together. Hey, kids, if you are normally have escaped back to have fun in the children's wing and you are in with us today, welcome. Welcome. I hope you hear something here too that's helpful for you because we're all hoping. We're hoping a lot today. 
mom and dad hoping everybody behaves. Kids are hoping I don't talk too long. Everybody's actually hoping I don't talk too long. We're hoping our families can continue to get together. I'm looking at the student section. I know you guys have been doing some hope and hope I pass this test, right? It's test-taking season. We're close to that. We have a lot of hopes in our lives, and they get heavier. God, I hope you choose to move. I hope you choose to heal my loved one. I hope you choose somehow to get us out of the situation. I hope, I hope. We have a lot of hopes. And the hope that I really want to focus on today is that hope at the end of our lives. What is that hope at the end of our lives? Because really, where we're at the end of our lives, and that hope really shapes and influences how we live today. So this is not the biblical section that's gonna come up. Here's my, I think this is my summary of how do you say what, what, what hopes are there to live in? Because this is the big question. When I ran into this, like what is, what is living in hope? What hope do you live in? How do you define living in hope? How does God define living in hope for us? And I think there's three hopes we can live in. Number one, it's the hope that you, you believe there is no God and you hope you're right. It's a big hope. A lot of people hold that view. We all know, we all love people who hold that view. But it's that hope that there, there is no God, they hope they're right. Okay. Secondly, you believe there is a God or gods, and you hope that you've done enough good things to get into heaven. This is a really common one. It's the works-based uh, approach. And really, most religions in the world hold to that. They're heavily works-based oriented. And we let that creep into Christianity, too. But in biblical Christianity, it doesn't exist. The third hope to live in that we really want to focus on today is that we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and hope in him. And that's a big hope. But how does that shape us? But I'd like to stop and just address each as we go through. I would say this. Number one, if you are the person who believes there is no God and you hope you're right, I just want to ask you one thing, and I hope you'll consider this. We're not your fight. Christians aren't your fight. And in the times in my life that I've been badgered or pushed or demeaned by someone who is battling with atheism and trying to knock me down for being stupid, short-minded, name all the things that get thrown at us as Christians, narrow-minded, hateful, uh, all things wrong, it's really clear the battle is not with us. Sit there looking into the eyes of someone who's battling the very God they're claiming doesn't exist. And I'd ask you to consider that today. If you believe there is no God, would you at least please consider that maybe the person that you're fighting is the very God that you say doesn't exist? I hope you'll consider that because your battle's not with us. You can poke holes in Christians all day long. We are a sinful group. You can find all kinds of stupid things we do. You can find out we're hypocritical. You can name it. Make your list. We fall over, but the difference is daily we're forgiven by our Lord and Savior. We stand clean before God because of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. If you don't know God, you don't have peace with him. You're at war with him. That's your battle. Please consider that. As you step through this season, 
Would you please, as you're surrounded with all the images, all the reminders of the coming of Christ the King, would you at least consider that that may be who you're fighting and that he is real and that he loves you and that he wants a relationship with you? That's what I want for you. That's what I want. That's what we want for you is to know his peace, to know his peace, know him, and walk through your life with him. Number two, you believe there is a God and hope you've done enough good things to get into heaven. A lot of major religions have, like I said, there's stuff all the way through where works are in there. And really, as sinful humans, we all want to play a role in our salvation. It's tough to grasp the fact that there's not something that's good in us that God chose or better in us than other people. It's like, well, I was chosen by God. Well, you know what? It isn't by any good thing we did, right? Paul even likens it to you're dead in your transgressions and a dead person can have no response. This is a sovereign Lord we serve and he comes to us and he offers grace. And in that grace, he gives us the ability to have faith in him. There's not a works component there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This one for me is a little chilling because as Bible-believing Christians, we know that works aren't a component, but they creep in every single day. They creep in through legalism, and all of a sudden, we're beginning to think these things we're doing, these good things somehow play a role in our salvation. And we have to remind ourselves and each other every day, they don't play a role in our salvation. They're simply an indicator of it. We're saved and we are loved and God calls us to action. And that action and and, and giving love and showing love to the world comes out through incredible things he asks us to do, hard things he asks us to do. But those are an indicator of our faith in him. We don't get into heaven because of those. And if that's your belief today, I'd, I'd just encourage you and hope that you would consider. Maybe it's by God's grace. Maybe there's not a long list of things to do. Maybe it's as simple as saying, I believe this price you paid for me is real. I believe you did it. And I accept that. And I simply, in you, stand without blemish before God our Father. The third one is where we're at. We who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ are called to a daily walk with him. Not not weekly, not monthly, not yearly. It's a daily walk, right? What did he say when the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread, right? He meters it out day by day. And although we would love to see the picture of weeks or months or years, he simply chooses not to do that. But we've talked about hope. We've lit the hope candle. We know that our hope is in Christ. That's our hope. We look forward to someday being with him in heaven. And we have this knowledge of maybe what it will look like, but he tells us, look, it's beyond anything we can come up with. It's so grand, so incredible to be with him where he's at. What we do know is there's the absence of a lot of things here that we struggle with. Pain, sickness, sin. All those things are gone when we're in perfection with him. But what does it look like now to live in hope? At the beginning of this, I couldn't answer that question in a manner that I thought was was adequate, right? I couldn't answer that to myself. I didn't know. And went on this quest of like, what does it mean to live in hope? 
I'm an entrepreneur by trade, an engineer. I am not a pastor. I don't have a seminary degree that would have armed me with anything to give you that says, here's what I've been taught in seminary about what it looks like to live in hope. I think what God gave me was a three-week run to figure out what this looked like because I needed to get something inside here, and I did, and I hope you do too. And it starts with this. We've been talking about Ebenezer's. This verse for me was an Ebenezer moment. There was a second, I won't forget, when God hit me with this. It was, it was uh, right at the front end of, of considering, you know, filling this position. And, and, and um, a pastor, I had been exposed to COVID, right? So I was going to not expose you guys. Uh, sat at home, listened to one of my favorite guys. And he had a message on a different topic. But up popped Romans 4.18. And God hit me hard. He said, that's it. That's the message on hope. And it's pretty short. I read it. I'm like, great. And... Right? And, and it's been this journey of figuring out what is he telling us? What is our message? And I'm like, is it for me or do I, do I share this with all of you? I believe I'm here because this is a message he has for us today. I fully believe that. Romans 4.18 says this, and speaking of Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So that's the English Standard Version that is in the Blue Bible. And what I'd like to do is jump into the New Living Translation because it helps explain that a little more. Hope against hope is an interesting thing. A lot of things like that come from the Bible, things we say, hope against hope. If, we are in, if you are in CBS this year, Community Bible Study, Daniel 5 gave us anybody. The handwriting is on the wall. That comes straight out of Daniel 5, kind of an ominous proclamation, but the Bible, uh, many of the things we say and the sayings we use are, are rooted in scripture. And here it is, hope against hope. What does hope against hope mean? Well, even for Abraham, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. So we're rooted here in Romans 4. And the whole goal of this book, Paul's writing this letter to the Romans. And he's using Abraham as an example. And the, the whole point of the message is it's not by works. Just being righteous before God is not by works. If it was by works, Abraham would be justified by them. And you know, I think we'd struggle to find someone who is more faithful to God, who is more obedient to God. And Paul's whole point is here, uh, with circumcision kind of at the heart of the discussion, um, it is not by works. Romans 4.3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So no works, it was through faith. And because of his faith, he has incredible hope. Abraham's hope is rooted and based on the faith that he has. It's a really interesting character. So give you some fun facts about Abraham, kind of grounder discussion on him. He was a native of Ur, so it was a port city in the region of Mesopotamia, one of the first known civilizations that we have on record. He's a 10th generation descendant of Noah, kind of set how far into this he is. His father uh, worshiped other gods. We learned that in Joshua. Uh, he's the father of Ishmael and Isaac, 
So we know in this story, God told him, you and your wife will have a child and you'll be the father of many nations. And as the story goes, it was an issue. They're closing in on 100. She's barren, no children. So they try to do things themselves. His wife, Sarah, offers Hagar her handmaid. Um, So Abraham has a child with Hagar named Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Islamic faith. From from Abraham to Ishmael comes the prophet Muhammad and and the Islamic faith. So the Islamic faith calls the same Abraham we call father. He is father to them. And we believe that God did work. He worked miraculously in the womb of a barren woman and that they did have Isaac together. So, So Sarah and Abraham had Isaac. He is the father of the Jewish nation. He is, and through him, the Jewish nation comes. Through the Jewish nation comes Jesus Christ. And so we as Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, children of God, uh, with Christ as our savior, have Abraham as our father too. We learn about him in Genesis. There's 12 through 25 are the books that cover him in Genesis. A lot in Romans 4, a lot in Hebrews 11. Abraham is throughout the Bible, but there's something about Abraham that is I'd not known before and I think is fascinating. He was a rich guy. He had a lot of possessions. In fact, when he and his nephew Lot were living together, they had so many animals and things were so large, they had to split apart because they were dominating a geographical area. But God, God had called Abraham into a life of being a nomad. When he's 75 years old, God came to him and said, come out of your father's house. I'm gonna take you to Canaan. And, uh, and that is where you will live uh, just as, as an exile. You're not gonna be a citizen there. So 75 when God called him out of his house, 86 when Ishmael was born, 99, 99 when he was circumcised, 100 when Isaac was born, ultimately lived to be 175 years old. It's quite a life. And in that whole life, the only land he ever owned was his burial site. The only land he ever owned was his burial site. And he bought it to bury Sarah. And then as when he died, Ishmael and Isaac came together and buried him there. And in reading through that and just steeping in it, you know, there's a couple of things that really jumped out about Abraham's life for us. What does it look like to live in hope? What does Abraham teach us about living in hope? Here it is. Number one, he lived here on earth as a foreigner, always looking forward to his home in heaven. For a hundred years, he lived in a tent with no earthly citizenship. That's a long time to be here and have no identification to anything in particular, right? We identify as Americans. We identify, we identify with a lot of things, but most of us who have residence here identify as American. Our passport would say citizenship, United States, or whatever country you're from or born in. He had none. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 tells us this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer 
and builder is God. A hundred years with no residence in a tent. After probably living pretty well, I mean, they had a large household that he was called out of. Don't know what it looked like then, but I don't think it was a tent. See, when, 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 they, when his father originally took him out of that port city in the Persian Gulf, the city of Ur, he moved toward, and his goal was to eventually take his household to Canaan. And for some reason, his father, Terah, stopped in um, Haran, H-A-R-R-A-N. Right? Pronounce it how you will. I'm, on, I'm saying Haran. So that's the, where he stopped. He didn't get to Canaan. But God called Abraham out of his father's house and completed that journey and got him there and had him wander around. But he lived on earth as a foreigner, always looking forward to God and to his home in heaven. No earthly citizenship. He had this incredible faith and this incredible relationship with God that gave him hope. He lived looking forward. But the second thing that's really important for us is while he was looking forward to the next world, he had a major effect on this one. He didn't just live here looking forward. He lived here and, and, and expected this promise from God that he would become the father of many nations. After his wife Sarah died that he had Isaac with, he married uh, another lady and they had six sons. Um, he continued to have children and those sons were the, were the father of many fathers of many groups. So his blessing on this earth while he was here came through God and that blessing was passed down and passed down and passed down. But the major effect he had and the major importance and impact on this world was rooted in, in his behavior. So here's what I find when I study through that and I read through those books, particularly Genesis 12 through 25, just to open and read and and, and steep ourselves in what he went through and what is recorded for us. Three things to me jumped out that he did. The first one is that he worshiped God. He was a really strong God worshiper. When he got somewhere and God met him, he built an altar and he worshiped. It even records when he came back through where he had built an altar, he worshiped. He lived this intense lifestyle of worship. He had a really close relationship with God. God was very intimate with him. This is pre-Bible, right? He has nothing but this relationship with God and God coming to him and him being faithful to that calling and being, being uh, obedient. But he's a God worshiper. The reason we know that he's a really effective God worshiper is later on when he sends a trusted servant to go get a wife for his son, Isaac. She goes back to his brother's house, the house of Nahor. And this is a big job. He's got to find a wife for the chosen son, right? Abraham charges him with this. And and through the course of events, read it. It's a fantastic account. When he finds her, Abraham's trusted servant worships God. He's worshiping God for who he is. Read what he says about him. It's incredible. And I think the reason he did is because his master was a worshiper. If you're around Abraham, you're going to wind up being a worshiper too. When you experience God, you're going to worship him. When you see him, you're going to worship him. I don't think he could be around Abraham and not pick that up. His servant demonstrated that as well. The second thing is he was obedient to God. He was really obedient. God asked him to do some incredibly hard things. Number one, at 75 years old, leave your father's house, move into a tent, live there for a long time. Throughout his life, he was asked to do some really difficult things. I can't imagine being circumcised at 100 years old or 99. I can't imagine putting your only son on an altar to prepare him for a sacrifice. 
which he did faithfully as God tested him, he was obedient. He was obedient in everything that God called him to do. And he cared for people. There's the account when um, incarnate Christ and two angels come to him, right? And, And they're getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, is in there. And so he's asking him, wait, my nephew is there. Can we get him out? And they, they commit that they will get him out. But Abraham, as those angels go um, down to that city, he's talking with the Lord. He said, Lord, if there is, if like, what if there's righteous people in there? If there's 50, would you save it? And God says, yeah. It's this dialogue. What if there's 40? Would you save it if there's 40? Mm-hmm. What if there's 30? And he keeps going down farther. And he's having this dialogue with God and he's distraught that in the destruction of the city, there might be people there who don't deserve that, who he would want saved. We know that when Lot was captured, he went after him. He took his own army and went to get him and his belongings and his people and his wives back. He cared for people. He cared for his family. He had a heart for people. So while he was looking forward to God's holy city, while he was looking forward to this promise, while he was looking forward to something he knew would never, he knew he wasn't gonna live long enough to become the father of many nations and see it, right? He knew it could happen, but you'd have to know you're not gonna see it. He still looked forward, he looked forward and he believed. He worshiped God, he was obedient to God and he cared for people and that really sets this model for us. But here's where it gets difficult and where it gets difficult for me. How do we apply that to our life? God gives us charges, and I think this is a difficult one. Like Abraham, we are Christians, children of the Most High God. We are not residents of this world. We have to acknowledge we're strangers and exiles here on earth. That's Hebrews eleven thirteen. Acknowledge it. Strangers and exiles here on earth. You are not of this world. Our residence is not here. As children of God, this is not where we have a foundation. This is not where we have land ownership. This is not where we have a house and we need to move out of our houses and into our tents. We have to live life looking forward to God's promises. And that's the scary part. Ask yourself this question. Where am I putting foundations down where I shouldn't be? I really don't like my answers on that one. That's a tough charge. Where are you putting down foundations where you shouldn't be? What does your tent look like? What does my tent look like? How do we get moved into the tent and out of the house? We are in a country today with an election that has really made it clear the path that we are taking nationally. Nationally, what this country holds dear. Nationally, what its values are moving toward rapidly. And it's safe to say, not biblical, not biblical at all. Every day, we should look more foreign. Every day we live in this country, we should look different. We should start standing out more and more as everything moves away from him and basically takes in everything that God says, here I am, here's what I expect, here's what says right, I say is right and wrong, here are my expectations, here's how I created it, here's my ordained design for us to say wrong. Either you don't even exist 
or worse than I think to say he's wrong. We're going to redefine it. We're going to get it straight. Uh, we'll live how like we want to live. If we're in that kind of a society that's moving toward that at a faster and faster pace every day, our tent should be moving a little quicker and we should look more like a foreigner. We should stand out more every day. When I was in high school, our senior trip was to New York, New York City. We were so excited. And one of my buddies, uh, you know, we're all farm kids primarily. If you didn't live on a farm, you made your spending money on a farm. You bailed hay, milk cows, shoveled stuff, right? It's just how you, everybody was associated one way or another. Suffice it to say, we didn't fit in New York City. But my buddy Matt, man, he was determined that as we stepped into New York City, he was going to look like a native, right? He was going to blend in and be cool. And he bought these clothes, and we're all kind of looking like, wow, is that what people look like in New York City? And he got there, and um, we were standing on the street waiting for a taxi cab. I was beside him, and we were standing beside a tall gentleman, and Matt was describing uh, his success to me and looking like a New Yorker. And the guy beside him started laughing. <laughs> and I remember looking up and he looked at him and he said, you actually think you look like you fit in? That's funny. You don't look like you fit in at all. You look like you came from somewhere really different. That's what we have to look like. Like we came from somewhere really different. We should look different more and more each day. We need to stop trying to fit in And as Pastor Chuck told us last week, stop living like an orphan. Stop living like an orphan. We're a child of the most high God. It makes us look different. Our hope is in him. This is not our residence. Stop it, right? Stop it. Stop trying to fit in and stand out for him. But while we're living in these tents, application number two, looking forward to God's coming promises, we still need to impact this world. It isn't like we can live, what's the old term? So heavenly minded, no earthly good. That's not what God called us to. Just like Abraham, he sets this example for us and he says, look, you know, you're living as a foreigner, but there's impact to be made because you serve a holy God who's powerful. He loves this place. He loves people we can't stand. We don't even want to look at. He wants to save people we don't want saved. Like Jonah sitting on the hill saying, I cannot believe you saved that city. There's people we don't like he's going to move and help. We're sinful. But he calls us to follow this example of Abraham and follow him daily. And it starts, I think, with worship. Worship him every day. Just like Abraham did, we need to worship, worship, worship. I don't know about you, I've loved the Ebenezer stories that people have been willing to come up and share. It's powerful to hear how God is moving in people's lives. It's encouraging. God is working in your life. I know every single one of us could come up here. Every single child of God can come up and talk about Ebenezer's that we have and where they are. If, if you don't know what an Ebenezer is, it's like the, it was the idea that God instructed them, like the Israelite people, when they had been taken through things, build, build a small, uh, like big rocks to little rocks that stands up, points toward heaven, and it represents that in this place, I did something for you. Put them on a map. They tend to happen in geographic locations. If you can get back to them, worship him there. And if you can't, worship through thinking them, right? Thinking where they're at, remembering what he's done for us. 
What a powerful God, what love he has for us. We need to be obedient to his call. He's given each one of us really special things to do. And I think those are even amplified and ramped up in this season. This is a season where people are open, right? Christ is everywhere. Regardless of your belief, you're gonna see mangers. You're gonna hear Christmas songs. You can turn on the Kennedy Center and hear the message of Christ even when people don't wanna hear it. It's in the music. We need to be obedient to his call. He's given us each jobs to do. He's equipped us to do it. He's gone before us. He said, I have prepared the way for you to do this. All through life, I've been preparing you up to this point to get you ready for this job, no matter how big and how small. And I am there with you as you do it. And I am there with you as we progress. And recall to love people through his actions. While we're living in tents here, worship him, be obedient, and love people. The thing I love about the Bible, it tells us this. It is not our job to judge. We don't have to judge the world. Not our job. There's judgment that comes in in managing and governing the church body, the body of Christ in a church. There's judgments that have to be made by earthly people through prayer, namely our elders. But we aren't called to judge the world, amen? We just have to love the people in it. Loving people through action is the most powerful thing we can do. But I'd ask you this. What more powerful message do you have than the message of hope? What do you tell a child who's stuck in an abusive situation and can't get out of it, doesn't know who their mom and dad are, and can't figure things out and needs help? Keep your chin up. Hey, don't worry, things will get better. I hope things get better. We have so much to offer. What do you tell the person who's lost a loved one? What do you tell the person who's lost a job? What do you tell the person whose family's fractured? What do you tell the person who's alone? What do you tell the person who's searching? What do you tell the person who's battling with God? We have hope. There is hope in Christ. He loves you. We have this message that, you know what? This is a short time. He's willing to be here with us, to walk through it. He came for us to make us right with God, bring us peace with God. We have this incredible hope, incredible message that we have to give. The Advent season not only symbolizes the waiting for Christ's birth, but also his, for his coming return. And as we step into this Advent season, I pray that we would lean in to each one of these, that we would lean in to hope this week, lean into the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that we would lean into everything he has for us, that we would honor and glorify him in everything we do and say by his power, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us that gives us this hope. May the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace in believing so that by the power of this Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today and we begin this season where we, where we celebrate, we look forward to your birth where we're in awe by what you did for us, for your love for us, for this magnificent action you took to become human, to live a perfect life, to be a perfect sacrifice. And by your grace, through faith in you, we can receive that. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible gift. Thank you for the way you came. Thank you that it was different than anything we thought. Thank you that you're different than things we think. Thank you that you blow our paradigms in ways that are so amazing. We see you are truly a holy, 
magnificent and powerful God. And as we step into this season, Lord, please fill us with your spirit. Please draw us near. Please help us to live in hope and impact the world you have put us in temporarily. Help us to look forward to our citizenship with you in heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.